Good to see you all here tonight. We have a couple of interesting things to go through tonight other than our lesson, but um, we'll get everything done, I hope. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started in our study related to Judges, not in Judges, but related to it, uh, we'll need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord in relation to our spiritual walk. And that means that if necessary, we need to confess sin, make sure we're walking by the Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word, that the light of your word illuminates our thinking, helps us to understand and interpret things that are going on around us, and how we should respond to things that take place. Above all, we know that you are in control of history. And therefore, when we look at what is what you are allowing to take place in Ukraine, it gives us a framework for not panicking and not being fearful, but understanding that you are allowing these things in order to uh, move the nations around, establishing the various scenarios that ultimately will culminate at the way things will be when, uh, when after the rapture takes place and in terms of the tribulation period. We don't know how close we are, how far we are, but often we get we succumb to newspaper exegesis thinking these things have something to do with prophecy, and they do. It may be 50, 100 years away, but uh, you're allowing things to be set up. So, Father, we trust you, and as we look at this, we pray for the friends that we know, the the uh, colleagues in ministry that are there, and we pray that you would watch over them, give them many opportunities to be witnesses verbally and with their lives. And, F- Father, in light of this uh, recent news that uh, Russian um, uh, Russian army may be moving through the area of Rojevka, north of Brovary, where there's been uh, such a great deal of fighting. We pray that uh, you would just watch over the homes and houses of those who live there who are part of the ministry of Jim, Jim Meyer's ministry there in Ukraine. Watch over especially his house and all that he has, his uh, many study tools that you provided for him over the years. And we pray that you would just protect them. But if not, Lord, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, but if not, then we will still obey you and we will still trust you in every area. And, Father, we are so grateful to see the witness uh, and the fruit that has been born from this ministry over the last 25 years and how uh, the teaching of the Word has borne such fruit in the lives of these students and members of the church. Father, now as we study the Word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will help us understand these things and put these things together as we continue to study the impact of paganism on a culture. And we pray that it would give us great insight into our own thinking and our own lives and those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Judges. And we have been studying for the last couple of months the fact that coming out of Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5, where you have some uh, significant role problems with Deborah as a judge and prophetess, Barak, who seems to be the timid general. And as I pointed out, since it has been for those of you here. Now, someone a year from now is just listening to this series. He's going to go, well, I listened to that lesson yesterday. But none of you listened to that lesson yesterday. You listened to it five weeks ago. So we need a little bit of review on what's been going on. But before we get there, 
I want to give you a little report on what is going on with Alex Lazurka. That's Alex uh, there, the tall guy there on the second from the left. And he is the Romanian who met uh, Jim and Phyllis and me when we came out of uh, Ukraine, crossed the border, and he continues to just be involved in aiding and helping all these families that come across the border. And he's sent me quite a few pictures, and I thought that it would be good uh, to show some of them uh, to you. I've got one of them has sound. You won't understand it, but it's nice to have the sound anyway. So I'm going to plug it in. There we go. Okay. So they picked up this family, he said, yesterday. Um, so this is Alex and this other family. Uh, his wife's name is Buana, B-U-A-N-A. I don't have a picture of her. But this is a family they picked up yesterday. And this uh, mother has a sick child that was throwing up for two days. Can you imagine you're, you're, you're in evacuation mode, refugee mode, and you've got a young child that's, that's throwing up for two days? Now the child is stable. They've been able to bring it, the child into either their, I don't know whose home that is, either theirs or somebody else in the, in the church. And they need more housing and they need someone to uh, lift their morale. And that is what a lot of the church, these Christians are doing at, at, at the border. And this is a picture of Romanian volunteers. Those in the yellow jackets are going to cross over on the basis of their passport and go over to Ukraine, and they're taking food and water and other things to those who are waiting in line for 12, 14, 24 hours or more. And so he said uh, uh, this flow of people like this is just constant for the last couple of days. This happens to be... Uh, the Jewish Distribution Committee, that, or the Joint Distribution Committee, that for which is Jewish, and that's Jews refer to that as simply the Joint. But you can see that uh, this man here is wearing a kippa, and so they're providing uh, food and other things for the people who are who are coming out. And this just shows you some of the crowds that are uh, coming out. Now we never saw anything like this because when we came. Started in, it, we got there, it was 11.30 at night. When we came out, it was 6.45 in the morning, and there was no sunlight, so we had no idea what our surroundings were. Okay, here's another picture you see of, of uh, the, uh, the, just a huge number of people that are moving, moving through the area. And uh, just another picture as well. And then this little baby is Maria's son, Arthur. He's in the hospital now. He almost died. Uh, he turned blue, and his body was cold, uh, but he's okay now. And so they were able to get him and get his mother and get them to the hospital. And then these are just some other pictures of uh, children and families as they are coming, coming across the border. We have, uh, this shows some of the lines there on the other side of the fence. You can't, may not see that very well, but they're all on the other side of the fence waiting, waiting to get across, uh, across the border. And this looks very familiar. This is like when we came out and the, you're, the sides of the road were just lined with, with trucks and campers and tents and whatever and people who were providing. Uh, they've got uh, porta potties out there because if you've spent the last 24 hours trying to get across the border, the question is, where are you going to be going going to the bathroom? So you got all and, where, and drinking and water. And so this is them uh, taking supplies. Uh, getting supplies and storing them. And so we have a video here so you can see how they're just... So he 
hier uh, zijn we aan de andere kant van de grens nu. Je ziet dat er een hele lange rij staat voor, voor in de Oekraïne. Ze zijn nou, uh, we hebben kinderpakketjes gemaakt, zijn we nu aan het uitdelen hier. Uh, ja, dus je ziet de hele lange rij hier achter ons. Het is nou mooi weer, dus dat scheelt. And that tremendous handing food over the fence and taking care of so many people. So we have uh, sent, we had a lot of donations that came in during the conference, and we are sending that. Some is designated to go to Alex. Some is designated for whoever we think needs it. Some is designated for Eager and his wife. I managed to, just before I left the house, send out a a prayer letter just to update some things on Eager and his family, as well as some things that are going on uh, in the village and with Oleg, and then a lengthy uh, letter of uh, uh, from Mark Musser that came in this morning. So you'll read that and get a lot more information on what's going on there. All right, we have been studying in Judges, and we've gotten as far as the completion of Judges 5. The theme of Judges is the moral and spiritual relativism that came into Israel after the conquest. And it is such a mirror into what is happening in our culture. It just exposes the same problems, the same issues. Uh, It affects the leadership. It affects the priesthood. It affects the people in the same way it affects the leadership here. We have... So many leaders, and I'm not talking about just right or left, because we have very few who understand there are absolutes for right and wrong on both sides of the aisle. And so we have to, we deal with this all the time, and and we right now have an administration that seems to have no moral compass, And we wonder what the guidelines are that give them any direction and who they're coming from. But this is not unusual in the devil's world. We have been shielded in this nation a lot from the horrors of the devil's world. And you get out into many countries, uh, whether it's in Asia or Africa, uh, places like that that have had little or no impact from the Judeo-Christian worldview of the Bible, and it, it's it's just horrific. And as we get close to the rapture, I think it's going to become more and more that way. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. That means they create their own reality because, as Romans 1 describes, which we've gone through several times, the people are suppressing truth in unrighteousness. Truth is reality. So they're suppressing reality, and in its place, they are inventing alternate realities. And there's one thing that I've pointed out through this, is that these alternate realities all have one thing in common, and that's Romans 125, that they've exchanged the truth with that definite article there. There is the singular truth of God is reality. They're exchanging reality, we might paraphrase it, for a lie, for a fantasy, for a made-up wish and hope. And they worship, and the word there has that idea of reverencing something. They worship and serve in a worshipful manner the creation. Most trans, A lot of translations translate that as um, uh, creature, which it can mean. Katissus can mean that. But it really has the idea of creation because they're not just worshiping creatures. They're worshiping Mother Earth. They're worshiping the stars. They're worshiping the universe itself. They've personalized the universe. And how many times do you hear people say, well, the universe did this and the universe uh, must be setting things right or the universe has corrected it? How can something that is, immater- that is material, rather, with no volition, no mentality, how can uh, that do anything? And it boils down that they have somehow entered into some panentheism or pantheism of the universe, which is which just goes along with the whole idea of monism. And that in this world, you can, uh, based on what we just read in uh, Romans 1, 
is that you have people who worship the creator and you have people who worship the creation. Those are the two worldviews. And those who worship the creation, are it always boils down to monism. And I gave you a quote, reference, just a paraphrase from C.S. Lewis, who said basically there's two worldviews. There's Hinduism. There's, in, in terms of its of pure, pure worldviews, there's, there's Hinduism and there's Jude- biblical Christianity. And everything else is somewhere on the spectrum between. So what we had that came up in the ancient world developed long before the Greeks, but they expanded on it a little bit, is this idea that there's this chain of being. All reality that they perceive is in this chain of being. Even God is in that chain of being. So uh, God is at the top. He's got the got perfect existence, and everything else shares in that existence. So that means everything else has some level of divinity in it. Now think about that. Because then when you're looking at what in the world is this whole environmentalism movement of today, where did that come from? Well, it's all shaped by by pantheism and by monism. And it can be traced back, and Mark Musser has done that in his book, uh, which may be beyond a lot of people. He does a fabulous job of going back into the 19th century, going back to the early 19th century and the rise of Romanticism and how that's linked in numerous areas, literature, music, all of uh, art, all that's the Romantic period and ultimately focuses on emotionalism. And one of the most significant in a negative way theologians was a man named Friedrich Schleiermacher, a German, and he is considered the father of modern religious liberalism. And for him, it was not about an an authentic, objective God and objective relationship with God. It was how it made you feel. And I just was going through things in my library looking for something else yesterday and ran across a master's thesis I forgot I had that is about uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher and the birth of modern music. See, it all comes out of theology, and I've said that for, for 30 years, that every issue in life has its root. In, in philosophy, they'll say its root's metaphysics, but metaphysics is what's beyond the physical, and that's God. Everything has its root in your view of God. So in their view, you start with God, and then everything else has derivative essence, uh, derivative existence, all the way down to vegetation and rocks and dirt and water and the whole astronomical uh, environment out there. And so this is essentially what, what monism is, is that everything shares the same essence or essential nature of being, to one degree or another. And pagan monism denies, therefore, that all that they're real barriers, that they're real distinctions. And we pointed out in Genesis 1 how many times God divides between this and this. They deny that. And God creates male and female. They deny that, that you have those two absolute realities of, of, of male and female. And so they want to generate their own and this causes a lot of problems because it causes problems in in the second divine institution of marriage in the third divine institution of family in the fourth divine institution uh, of of uh, government and the fifth divine institution of nations because you the everything ultimately comes down to the uh, health of the family and when the family members don't know who they are or how they fit within a family or what their God-ordained roles are, then you have major problems. So biblical Christianity stands against all forms of paganism, and that's really a challenge for young believers today and for you know immature Christians who are not taught very much and new believers because... Today we see more of a of a harsh 
contrast between biblical thought, divine viewpoint, and human viewpoint. It's always been that way. But when you live in a nation that thinks of itself as a Christian nation, those those borders and boundaries uh, get kind of fuzzy. And so people are really think think they can live with one foot on one side of the of the line and the other foot on the other side of the line. But we're at a point now where where that line is turning into a a a concrete barrier and you can't straddle the two. And there is a conflict, a strong conflict, just like we read in the Gospels between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the conflict between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. And what is human viewpoint? Human viewpoint is what the Bible describes as the world system. The spirit of the age, Romans uh, 12, that we are not to be conformed to the world, but to be, uh, excuse me, Romans 12, not to be conformed with the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the word there for world is not the word cosmos, it's the, it's the word ionos, which has the idea of the spirit of the age. And people, we all imbibe of the spirit of the age. It, it's around us, it's in our culture, it's in it, things we watch in the media, things we read, the uh, peers that we have, the parents that we have, the professors that we have, all influence us, and, it, and a lot of that comes from, from just human viewpoint. And so we have to learn these things if we are going to face the world. How do we know? Romans 12.1, don't be conformed to the world. How can we avoid being pressed into the mold of the world's thinking, the sight guys, if we don't know what it is? You know, some people, some, I've heard people say, you know, you just need to teach the Bible. You don't need to teach all this stuff about worldview and about apologetics and everything. We just need to know what the Bible says. Well, that's a very superficial approach to the spiritual life because how are you going to know the difference between the thinking of the world and the thinking of the Bible if there's not some development of both so that you can compare and contrast the two. That's why you have so many worldly Christians, and I use that in the sense they think just like they did before they were saved. And they haven't changed. I remember when I had that as a flashing epiphany. The big light bulb goes off. I was sitting in a a classroom in seminary, and I, it may have been in a church history class, and the professor made the comment, He said, and we're talking about Pentecostalism, and Pentecostalism is a mysticism, and it has, really has a mystical and existential view of, of life. And so you can grow up in, a, in an existential, mystical, subjective culture, and you can become a believer, but if the theology and the worldview are around that Christianity you're exposed to is Pentecostal charismatic theology. It's existentialism. It's, it's mysticism, and you don't have to change your worldview. You can be very comfortable at going to churches, these big mega churches, and you still have the same worldview and the same values you had before you were saved, and there's no difference. And so this is what we've been looking at with, with uh, understanding this background is on the left side of the slide, God, the biblical God, is a personal, infinite creator who is a triune God. And he has created, that is outside of himself, a finite universe. So this black barrier here is to separate the creator from the creation, the creator-creation distinction. But on the right panel, what you have is the view of Every other worldview, you have an infinite impersonal universe, and it, it's, it's a closed system, and God, man, and nature are all within the, that closed system. And that closed system is basically represented by a yin-yang system. So with that, we started looking at the role distinctions and what God did in, in creating male and female. And that's important because God designs every part of the male from the material part, the biological part, to the soul part 
to be a, the function and role of the man as he created him. And the same thing with the woman. There's so many different, we went through all those differences that I pulled out of several articles between men and women, not just the obvious ones, but numerous ones, that you can't just wave a magic wand and say, well, today I'm a girl. doesn't work that way. How does that happen? I may talk about that a little bit next time. We live in, a, in the devil's world, and people can get, they can pick up some really strange ideas, and people say, well, how? You know, we say it's volitional, and that seems simple. But it isn't that one day they woke up and said, oh, I think I'm going to be a girl. That is the consequence of probably uh, two or three million small decisions that you don't see any relationship with. But in the matrix of all those different bad decisions, sinful decisions, it pushes them in a certain direction. And then they, they give in to that. And it's all mixed up with their sin nature and the trends of their sin nature, inclinations of their sin nature. And, but ultimately, it goes down to how they respond to a lot of things that are in their environment. Now, they may have a sibling that has the same kinds of things, and they respond a little differently. So they don't end up that way. And it, it, it's just tragic. So we went through Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Second, we saw that equal men and women, male and female, are created equally in the image and likeness of God. And it doesn't mean they're interchangeable. Equal means they have equal standing before God, equal abilities as terms of being in the image and likeness of God, but they have different roles. And this is really the the underlying agenda that's been in the uh, feminist movement going back in, in America to the early 19th century. It's interesting. The people who were instrumental ideologically in the feminist movement of the 19th century did not come out of a sound biblical Judeo-Christian background. The philosophical ideas that affected their movement did not come out of biblical Christianity. It was part of the counter-movement to biblical Christianity that began to develop in this country. Probably you can see the seed forms in the 1700s, but you began to see pockets of this with the transcendentalists and others in the early, early 19th century. Then in Genesis 2, 16 to 25, we learn that how the mechanics of how God created the woman uh, from the side of man so that we as the human race are a unity that all goes back to Adam. And we learn the mission of man is to serve God and to obey him and um, exercise that dominion. But that is all destroyed in Genesis 3.15 when they sin. And then we looked at 1 Corinthians 11.2 through 16, dealing with the fact that these role relationships, the authority relationships between men and women are carried out within the framework of the local church and the worship of the local church. And what's brought out in that passage that I think is so, so important is that this has something to do with presenting a testimony before the angels that has to do with authority. And I've often made this comment, have you ever wondered why the Bible puts such an emphasis on authority relationships? And it's not just a practical thing, because the original sin of Satan was a violation and rejection of authority. And if we don't deal with that, it is foundational to everything in our life. Our sin nature is basically one revolution machine that just cranking out re revolution against God day in and day out. And that means that we are sinful to degrees that we can't imagine. I think somebody said that one time. Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Who can comprehend it? You can't, we can't comprehend our own sin nature. 
And it's constantly deceiving us. And the only thing that can counter it's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And then we got into 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 last time. And so I don't think I'm going to quite finish this tonight, but I might. Uh, so we're going to get a little review. And I pointed out in this passage that the emphasis is on the role distinctions between men and women in the worship meeting of the church. Now, I'm going to show that as we go through that tonight. It's not talking about what happens down at your place of employment. It's not talking about what's going on at at school. It's not talking about what's going on outside of the worship meeting of the local church. It's talking about what is going on inside the local church and that Paul is talking about the manner and the mode of how men should conduct themselves, males, because it's when you get down to verse 8, it shifts from anthropos, which means which, which can refer to all mankind, humanity, the human race, to andros, on air, males and females. So it's the, emphasizing that role distinction. And first he begins with men. I therefore desire that the males pray everywhere. Men are the spiritual leaders in the home. Men are the spiritual leaders in the church. Men are the spiritual leaders, and they need to take ownership for that. One reason I think we have a lot of problems is ever since Adam gave up his spiritual leadership role in the garden, Men have been giving up their spiritual leadership roles in the home, and it just leads to absolute chaos. And so then uh, we covered last time that uh, Paul talks about the manner and the mode in which women should dress. There's appropriate clothing for worship and not. We live in a world today where the informality has dominated, and I and a few of my colleagues try to resist that and try to always show up. If we're going to get in the pulpit, that's why I have standards that if you're going to get in the pulpit on Sunday, you need to have a coat and tie. I make a few exceptions here and there, but uh, we need to comport ourselves in a way that reflects our reverence and our respect for God. Now, there are other cultures that, that are extremely informal, and and you don't necessarily find that, but you know. And you think about Israel. A lot of you've gone to Israel with me, and Israel's extremely informal in the way they dress, and you don't see men wearing business suits. But what's interesting, if you go to the Knesset, they're wearing coats and ties because they recognize there's something serious about what they're doing when they go as lawmakers. I remember one time uh, going over there with uh, may have been the APAC group, probably was the APAC group, and we were going to a Knesset session. And so we were all told that we needed to bring a coat and tie to wear to uh, this uh, going to the Knesset session and then having a, a briefing by a member of the Knesset afterwards. And I... Um, I can't remember what the exact occasion was, but somehow, for some reason that day, I met our travel agent, Lindy, and she was so shocked. She said, I never, Robbie, I've never seen you in a coat and tie. I never see anybody here in a coat and tie. I said, well, we're going to the Knesset. Really? They wear coats and ties? So it, it's that kind of a surprise. So anyway, we got down to this section last time. And we have to remember several points. First of all, that because of sin, life is corrupted. Our souls are corrupted. Our desires are corrupted. Our relationships are corrupted. Our responsibilities, everything in life is corrupted and corroded because of sin. We're not living in the world God created. In fact, we're a couple of steps removed. Uh, There was one shift that occurred as a result of sin in the garden and then another shift that occurred after the flood. but it doesn't remove God's design for the roles and functions within his plan. Men and women are equally in the image of God. They're designed for different roles and functions, but sin corrupts our understanding, and we always have to have a correction, and that's what the Word of God does. Sin also corrupts our biology. This is why you have people who get so confused that they look in the mirror and see the one of 125 genders. 
we have to recognize that paganism attempts to redefine the meaning of everything in God's world. So, 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 12. I desire, therefore, that men may everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Notice he starts with the males, and then he goes to the women. So he's not just picking on women. He's picking on both. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, that was becoming a problem, and I pointed this out last time, that's becoming a problem in the Roman culture as as a whole, and even secular writers were making issues out of this. So it wasn't something that was uh, where Paul's imposing some kind of a legalistic pattern on dress. But the standard is is as unto the Lord. It's proper for women professing godliness with good works. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be quiet. So verse 11 goes on to say, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, that's a verse everybody stumbles over, and we'll have a little fun when we, when we get there. So we have to always look at the context, as I pointed out the last time, that the pastoral epistles are addressing the role and qualifications of leadership in the local church. Second, they are uh, addressing specific issues related to responsibilities of local churches, Third, they emphasize certain priorities for the worship in the local church, primarily on prayer and the teaching of the Word of God. And fourth, they also address issues that are important for the spiritual growth of all believers, not just pastoral responsibilities. So that's the context. And this is going to be clearly uh, stated within the context of First Timothy. So at this time, Paul is in his first imprisonment, which is around A.D. 62, and he wrote the pastorals during and after that, probably 63 to 67. So he's the argument from the egalitarian, that's from the word equal, related to the word equal. Egalitarians believe that there are no role distinctions, that, that roles of men and women are totally interchangeable. And so we refer to them also as evangelical feminists. So Paul wrote, in their view, Paul wrote 1 Timothy to counteract a specific situation in the life of the church in Ephesus. So therefore, it only applies to them. It doesn't apply to anybody else. But two, nothing written to a specific situation, this is their conclusion, nothing written to a specific situation is normative for the church today, Therefore, 1 Timothy contains no directives for the church today. What's the flaw in that? Is that 1 Corinthians was written to answer a number of specific questions, but everything applies to today as well as then. God deals with some of these uh, these things as uni- universals. In 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul defines his purpose. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God. Not how you conduct yourselves uh, at school, not how you conduct yourselves uh, when you're at, at your job, not how you conduct yourselves when you're out on the sports field or you're in the military, but how you conduct yourselves in the house of God, when you're coming together in a local church in order to worship God as a God of, of order. So the church is the church of the living God. This is God's church, not Robbie's church. You, you, we use that slang all the time. Well, I go to Robbie's church or Andy's church or Bill's church or Greg's church or something like that, but it's God's church. We're the body of Christ. And so we are to carry out what we do in the context of the local church worship service according to God's rules because we're in his church. 
Now, when we looked at it last time, I pointed out that 1 Timothy 2.1 says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. It's specific. It's anthropos. And for all kings and all who are in authority. Now, this is a standard word for authority. It's not the word that's used a little later on in, in uh, uh, 1 Timothy 2.12. For kings who are in authority, why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That word quiet is the same word that's used when it talks about uh, women should learn. And it's translated in the uh, New King James as um, a woman should learn in silence. But really what we'll see is that word, is, it's accurately translated here, quiet. It shouldn't be a hubbub in church. shouldn't be people talking. shouldn't be people uh, getting involved in uh, debating with one another, raising their hand and asking questions in the middle of it. It's, it's orderly, and it's, it's quiet so people can learn. And we'll see some other passages related to that. But it, it, we understand it clearly in this context that we pray for the leaders so that we can live a life that is not under uh, that is not so much under the authority of the government that it's always in disarray that we're fearful. One of the things that uh, Putin announced at the very beginning of his invasion was he was calling on all Ukrainians to return to uh, Mother Russian Church and the Patriarchate of Moscow. Uh, there, there is a religious element to what he wants to do, and it's not good. He wants to suppress evangelical churches. This happened with some laws that were passed back in the 90s, actually, in, uh, in Russia, and a lot of evangelical ministries had to move out of Russia because of that. So this is, um, we're, we're to pray for all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet, that means undisturbed, a tranquil life in all godliness and reverence. And the word there for anthropos emphasizes all mankind. Then we go down to verse 3, or verse 4 actually. God, our, our God and Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, that's anthropos. It's talking about the whole human race. Uh, verse, verses 5 and 6, there's one God and one mediator between God and man and men. The man Christ Jesus. This is all talking about uh, human beings is the idea there. And that Christ gave himself a ransom for all. And then we'll skip 7, but when we get to verse 8, Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray. And it's significant because he changes from anthropos to an heir. And that emphasizes the man versus the woman. It emphasizes the husband instead of the wife. It emphasizes the male. And so he wants the men in every place to pray. Men are the spiritual leaders in the church. Now, a couple of years ago when COVID started and we had to, we quit and we did all this stuff, we didn't, we gradually come back. But we need to reinstate prayer meeting on Tuesday night. We need to start getting here at 7 and having more than one or two show up. I remember when we first started, unfortunately, most of those people are now with the Lord. And uh, we used to have eight or nine men and eight or nine women in there for prayer meeting. And then it sort of dwindled because it seems like most of the people who have the Lord has taken in the last 16 years, were people who came on Tuesday night and Thursday night and people who came to prayer meeting. So they've gotten promoted, and we're the ones who are still here. So, But the point here is he's talking to the males in every place that their focus is spiritual leadership, lifting up uh, holy hands. And I pointed out that the word there, holy, is not um, hagias, it's hosias, which is a... Uh, a synonym, and it means sanctified or pure. And it's it, it, this idea of cleanse your hands, you sinners, uh, used in uh, in uh, James chapter chapter four, verses eight through ten, is, uh, is he's talking about confession of sin. How do we cleanse ourselves? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is. 
that's what this is emphasizing, and it, the negative is expressed that it's without wrath and dissension. Then he talks about the women and how they should, should dress, and I close with this quote from uh, Tom Schreiner in his uh, chapter on interpret- interpretation of 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15 in um, Women in the Church, third edition. He says, furthermore, uh, his being Paul, reaction to women imitating the latest hairstyles shouldn't shock us since it was quite a new trend, really begun only a decade or so earlier, and since it carried connotations of both imperial luxury and the infamous licentiousness of women like Messalina and Papea, today it is the equivalent of warning Christians away from imitating styles set by promiscuous pop singers or actresses. How one dresses can often convey rebellious or ungodly messages, whether intended or not. And I pointed out that 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 I have been told that you go to a lot of these large evangelical megachurches, you've got a lot of young people there, and they are they, they don't dress any different than if they were going to a rock concert. And does that really honor God? So Paul makes the point, rather by means of good works, this is how uh, women should dress, by means of good works. The emphasis is not on the stylishness of your dress, but is on the quality of your character, your spiritual life. By means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. This is the word theasebia, which has the idea of godliness. That's an English word meaning godlikeness or imitating the character of God, someone who has a fear of God. And we could paraphrase it, being focused on their spiritual life. These befitting someone who is focused on their spiritual growth, their walk with the Lord by the Spirit, and they are going to dress appropriately when they come to worship. Now, in terms of good works, some people say, oh, you're a legalist if you emphasize good works. Well, legalism is the idea that God blesses me because of what I do, so I have to be behave a certain way, do this and do that, and then God will will bless me, and that's a works-oriented mentality. But Jesus says a lot of things that are often overlooked. In John 14, 15, he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments is just another way of saying, Obey me, do what I say to do. That is not like legalism. John 14, 21, he expands on it. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then in John 15:10, all of this is taken from what is called the upper room discourse and making it very clear that the, what is expected of the believer is to be obedient and walk with the Lord, abide in Christ. That's John the first part of John 15. He says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That word abide is in John's writings a key word for fellowship. That's what he's talking about. Abiding in Christ's love means that we are in partnership, in fellowship with God. We're walking by the Holy Spirit. We're walking in the light. All of these are terms talking roughly about the same thing. So you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then in 1 John, he re, John reiterates this. Now, John wrote his gospel probably around 90 to 94. There's a lot of debate as to exactly when he wrote the gospel. But he's writing what Jesus said the night before he went to the cross in A.D. 33. But in 1 John, he's writing a letter to these recipients some, some um, in, in the 90s, in the early 90s probably, but he's been meditating on what Jesus said in the, on, in the upper room discourse in John 14 through uh, 16, and he's applying it. He says, now by this we know that we know him. Now that's not talking about getting saved. 
someone who knows him well. Philip in John 14, um, when they're trying to figure out where Jesus is going, and Philip says, well, show me the Father. Now, Philip's saved, and Philip has been there for all three years of Christ's public ministry, and Jesus said, how long have you been with me, Philip, and you don't know me? See, that kind of knowledge is a more intimate knowledge. It's not just getting saved. It's, it's learning who Jesus really is and developing a relationship with him. So in John, 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we know him. In other words, have a maturity of knowledge about Christ if we keep his commandments. Well, why would that be? Uh, because, as Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. In 1 John 2, 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's not saying he's not saved. He's saying he just doesn't understand doctrine. He just doesn't understand the truth of Scripture. 1 John three twenty four, he says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. Now, that's a word, abides is a word for fellowship. So those who are obedient and walk with, again, keep God's commandments, keep Christ's commandments, they stay in fellowship. But when we break those commandments, we're no longer in fellowship. We're walking by the sin nature. So he says, he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That word abide equals abiding in Christ, John 15, 1 through 7. It's the same as fellowship, which has the idea of a partnership between two or more people who are all going in the same direction. Walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, being filled by means of the Spirit, those are all roughly different terms describing that same intimate relationship between the believer and Christ. So then in verse 11, Paul gives a command. He says, let a woman quietly receive instruction with all submissiveness. That's my uh, revised translation. The NET puts it like this. A woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, the let a woman receive instruction is a third-person imperative. We really don't have third-person imperatives in English. We mostly think of imperatives as you do this or you do that or you all do this. But when you're talking about let them do something, that's a third-person imperative. And so the NET picks that up in the way they translate it. A woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness. And one of the things that we should notice is back in verses 9 and 10, he was talking to women, a plural, and now he shifts to a singular because he's talking about generic principles. And this would include all women. Uh, and what does it mean by quietly? Or the New King James says silence. First Timothy 2.2, 2, I mentioned when we went through that a minute ago, it has the word quiet. It doesn't mean an absolute silence. First Peter 3.4 uses it also talking about uh, a woman. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a humble and quiet spirit. Now, most scholars believe that this word, hesukia, that, that is um, <clears throat> translated as quiet, is not, does not mean absolute, total uh, si- silence. It's a different word in 1 Corinthians 14. I'll talk about that in a second. So the, this tells us that this is just someone who is um, going about life, not disruptive, not argumentative, not causing trouble, and it is used to apply to both men and women. Uh, so uh, the humble there is the, uh, that's the uh, Greek word praus, which indicates uh, humility, humble and quiet spirit, precious in the sight of God. So he says, let a woman receive instruction. This is from the verb mantano, uh, which is a third person present active imperative. So it's, it's not you do this, but let a woman do this. Let them receive instruction with all submissiveness. So th- th- again, we get to that issue of authority. 
that is true for men and women. It's not just picking on women. And then uh, that word quietly, hesukia, has the idea for uh, not ex- not absolute silence, but just not being uh, disruptive or speaking out uh, in in church that there should be um, a, a quietness so that you respect others' uh, ability to study and to concentrate. It's used in. Second Thessalonians three twelve. Now those who are su- who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness. See now, you've been places where people are working quietly, but that doesn't mean they don't talk. That's not doesn't mean that they've got a muzzle on their mouth. Uh, they are just focusing on doing what they're doing and not being in any way uh, disruptive or distracting to anyone else. 1 Corinthians is different, though, and it uses this word silent in verse 30, which is why I put all these verses here. If anything is revealed to another... So he's been talking about the gift of prophecy and the proper way to talk about, uh, to exercise the gift of prophecy in the local church, not just pop up and say, God gave me a word of whatever, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. He says, if you're... If God has given you something to say, a prophecy... Uh, But if anything is revealed to another, that's what prophecy is. It's receiving a direct revelation from God, and this was temporary. This doesn't apply today. Uh, Is revealed to another who sits by, then the first one needs to be quiet, not interrupt them. They're just, just observing good manners and being quiet. For you can all prophesy one by one. Notice, not all at the same time, one at a time one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, self-control and self-discipline. That's really the subtext that we have through this section, is that the people, the, remember, we're talking about the same Corinthians that we talked about a couple of lessons back, where the women and the men had role reversals and Paul had to straighten all this out because there was there were a lot of different problems. These are the church that he uh, reams them out in chapters 1 and 2 for being arrogant and divisive and I follow uh, uh, Kephas or I follow Apollos or I follow Paul and the really spiritual one said, I follow Jesus. They were arrogant, and it's divisive. So that's who he's talking to. He's he's shutting down their me-isms because people were coming, and they wanted to show off their spiritual gift, which is the lack of humility. So he says you have to have, you have to exercise self-discipline. And he says in verse 33 for god is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints and then in verse 34 he says let your women keep silent again uh this is a uh a command and it is a, and it's a different word though than the word that's used over in first uh, timothy 2 it's uh sigas which has the idea of of being silent, they're not permitted to speak. This is strong language and very hard for people today to understand what is going on here. And I believe in this chapter he's dealing with some some specific problems and because that's what he's been doing all through 1 Corinthians. But it's really interesting we stop where, where they cut the, ver- the verse. Verse 35 continues the main thought of the verse 34 when it says let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive to who well to the word and to their husband because the next thing he says if they want to learn something let them ask their own husbands at home recognizing that that the husband even if he may be spiritually immature compared to the wife that the husband is still to be the spiritual leader of the home and that position is to be respected. 
Now, we've all been disrespectful of our current president, I'm sure. Maybe I'm just overgeneralizing, but I know that is true. But we are to respect the office. And see, the husband may not be even clued in spiritually, but he still has that office, and we're to respect the office. And the same thing's true. When we talk about the president or we talk about anybody in authority, that even if we disagree with them, even if they have risen, what's the old thing, the Peter principle, that you rise to the level of your incompetence? And even if they are as incompetent as they can possibly be, that person is still the commander-in-chief. That person is still the uh, president. And so when the president walks in the room, everybody stands up when they play hail to the chief, all of these things, we are to be respectful of the position, if not the person. Even if the person is not worthy of respect, it is the office. And we all need to hear that correction every now and then. I'm as guilty as anybody else of making pejorative comments about this president and many other presidents, but um, that is not correct. So, Women are to respect the fact that their husband is a spiritual authority and to go home after church and say, would you please explain to me what the pastor taught this morning? Now, he may have to go do some homework after that because that puts him on the spot and you do it in a, in a nice way. So what we have here in 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And then there's a contrast, and Paul says, but I do not permit or I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over over a man. And so the word for man here, again, is aner. He's talking about male and female role distinctions. And he makes it very clear. He uses a word here related to uh, permit that is used a number of different ways. And he makes a distinction, and he says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority. Those are two specific areas over a man, and that is within the context of the worship service of the local church. It's not talking about sitting around the coffee table at home and, and like uh, Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos and where they're answering his questions and helping him understand the way of salvation. That's not in a church service. It's not in a formal setting. And so that's, that does not apply there. It's within that context. So Paul says, I don't allow, which is the uh, word for epitrepo, which has the idea of permitting or allowing something. Uh, Paul uses it a number of places, but he uses it in Hebrews 6.3 saying, and this we will do if God permits, if God allows. That's the same idea. So it's talking about the fact, and when Paul says it's I don't allow, he is speaking for God. He is an apostle. He's part of the foundation of the church in terms of what he writes, and he is applying the word here. He is not some misogynist. I'll never forget the first time I heard some liberal Methodist say, oh, well, Paul hated women. I was floored. Where in the world did you get that idea? Paul loved women. He says so many positive things about women. And not only that, but in comparison to the way the culture treated women, Paul mentions them by name. When Paul went to Philippi, he goes down by the water where the women are washing, and uh, he talks to the women, and he has a little Bible class down there and explains the gospel. His focal point is on women. Culturally, women were ignored. Their names weren't mentioned. They weren't talked about. And um, and Paul's not that way at all. So he says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but the contrast to remain quiet. Now, this first item, to teach, what do we mean by teaching? Does that mean that we shouldn't have women uh, teaching in public school? No, it doesn't. When you look at this word, uh, didasco is the verb, it means to teach or to instruct. It's used five times in the pastoral epistles. 
And every time it's used in the pastoral epistles, it is used in the context of the local church ministry. And so, and, and I, I don't mean a more precise term would be in the function of how the local church is to conduct itself in terms of a worship service, in terms of the, of the leadership, where the focus is on the primarily on the teaching of the Word of God. And the word for exercising authority, uh, there's a lot of debate over this because this is what they call a hapax legomena, which means it's only used once in the New Testament. And uh, you can see by the beginning of it, the A-U-T-H has a lot of similarity with the English word authority, and that's what it relates to. And it just has the idea of having authority. It doesn't mean having authority in a domineering manner. That's how the evangelical feminists want to translate it. It means uh, to have authority. And one of the big debates is, well... Teaching is one thing. Have this this idea of exercising authority is that they're just doing it in a wrong way. So you'd have a positive thing, teaching, and a negative thing in terms of domin- having exercising authority in a domineering manner. But uh, Andreas Kostenberger did a detailed study of every kind of structure like this where you have it, the connection between uh, two activities and either they're both negative or they're both positive, but one's not positive and the other negative, or one negative and the other positive. They're all positive, positive, or negative, negative. And that that goes in the face of the argument of the uh, evangelical feminists because they want to say, well, teaching was okay. They were just doing it in a domineering manner. And that is... uh, cannot be defended at all on an exegetical basis. It does not mean to domineer or exercise authority in an overbearing overbearing manner. And so this is uh, how the teaching is used in, in the pastorals. And our verse 2.12, uh, 4.11, he tells Timothy, these things command and teach. That's his role as a pastor teacher in the local church. And in 1 Timothy 6, 2, he says, teach and exhort these things. That's the role of a pastor teacher. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, uh, the things that you've heard from me, by the things he means the biblical teaching that you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then in Titus 1.11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not. That's within the context of the local church. And it relates to doctrine, that which is taught. It's the word didaskalia in the Greek, where Paul warns Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. So we get that far tonight, and next time we'll come back and look at the reason for this prohibition. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight. We remember Alex and the work that he and his church are doing over there in ministering to these uh, thousands of people that are coming out of Ukraine tens of thousands, and we're so thankful that he is able to do that and help those who have no idea what they're going to do once they cross the border. Father, we thank you for your word that it gives us light and uh, illuminates our thinking about reality and truth and where we are put up face-to-face in conflict with the culture. But, Father, we know that if we trust you, that you will make our path straight. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.